Again, tonight's teaching comes from Acts chapter 23, verses 1 through 11. And here we read that Paul looked straight at the Sanhedrin and said, My brothers, I have fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience to this day. And at this, the high priest Ananias ordered those standing near Paul to strike him on the mouth. And then Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. You sit there to judge me according to the law, yet you yourself violate the law by commanding that I be struck. And those who are standing near Paul said, how dare you insult God's high priest? Paul replied, brothers, I did not realize that this was the high priest, for it is written, do not speak evil about the ruler of your people. Then Paul, knowing that some of them were Sadducees and the others were Pharisees, called out in the Sanhedrin, my brothers, I am a Pharisee. Descended from the Pharisees, I stand on trial because of the hope of the resurrection of the dead. And when he said this, a dispute broke out between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided, because the the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection and that there are neither angels nor spirits, but the Pharisees believe all of these things. There was a great uproar, and some of the teachers of the law who were Pharisees stood up and argued vigorously, we find nothing wrong with this man, they said. What if, in fact, a spirit or an angel has spoken to him? The dispute became so violent that the commander was afraid Paul would be torn to pieces by them. He ordered the troops to go down and take him away from them by force and bring him into the barracks. The following night, the Lord said, near, uh, stood near Paul. The Lord stood near Paul and said, Take courage. As you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so also you must testify in Rome. And here ends our lesson. We've been looking at the book of Acts, and we've said the book of Acts is the story of the early Christian church, and it is. It's the story of God using broken and flawed people to take the good news of Jesus Christ, that saving gospel message, and drive it out into the world. That's one way of describing it. A different framework of thinking about it, however, is that the book of Acts is a legal defense. And you see that especially here in the final movement of the book, in these final chapters. We said uh, that we're looking at several weeks in a row of the Apostle Paul on trial and essentially making a defense about what he believes. He makes a defense to the Jewish people in general. He makes a defense to uh, the Jewish leaders, the official ruling council called the Sanhedrin, which is what we see here today. In the subsequent weeks, we're going to see him looking uh, on trial before Roman leaders, Felix and Festus and Agrippa, respectively. And in each case, essentially what you have here is a man who's making extraordinary claims. And if you're going to make extraordinary claims, you have to have reasonable, sufficient evidence that backs up those claims. So what we see Paul doing is providing a rational defense, okay? Uh, Winsomely, logically, calmly, humbly, and therefore persuasively to people who are denying what he's teaching. And in that respect, we see the Apostle Paul, we've seen him throughout the book of Acts as a missionary, we've seen him as a pastor, and what we see here is the Apostle Paul as what you might call like a cultural apologist. And Christians are called essentially to be each in some respects. And so let's take a look at the text. First of all, remember where we sort of left off last week, the Apostle Paul is in the temple courtyard and he gets attacked by a bunch of Jews who believe that he has violated the Jewish laws and customs, okay? Well, the Roman commander at the time, a guy that we'll see several times in this text, his name is Claudius, he intervenes. 
and he tries to break up the riot of the Jews in the temple courtyard. And actually, it's at that moment, once he seizes Paul, that Paul says to him, I'm actually a Roman citizen. And now Claudius realizes, this is my hide. Like if I let something happen to a Roman citizen in this jurisdiction, it's on me. Like I could lose my job for this or worse. And therefore he wants to make sure that the Apostle Paul gets a fair trial. He brings about like an informal assembly of the Jewish Sanhedrin and he demands that they give uh, clear and accurate specific accusations about why exactly they want to bring Paul to trial. And it's at this moment that the, the Apostle Paul essentially gives his opening statement, which we read just a minute ago in verse one, where he says, my brothers, I have fulfilled my duty to God. I have fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience to this day. And this essentially is just an opening statement of not guilty, right? Um, he says, I'm not guilty. Whatever they're charging me of with violating Jewish law, I haven't done it. Uh, I have carried out my mission that God has sent me on. My conscience is clean. I am not guilty. Now, understand, he's not saying he's sinless. This is the same guy that not too long after this is going to call himself the chief of sinners. He's not saying I'm sinless. He's saying I'm not guilty of whatever charges are being brought against me by these Jewish individuals. Well, after Paul says this, the next step is that the high priest at the time, a guy by the name of Ananias, orders that he be punched in the face by some of the Jewish leaders standing there, right? Uh, now, this is, this is a great illustration of what you might call excessive force. And when this has obviously been something that's been in the news uh, a lot recently, and obviously since, since Paul's on trial, it's probably worthwhile to get a legal definition of what excessive force actually is. So according to the Cornell School of Law, excessive force refers to force in excess of what a police officer reasonably believes is necessary. A police officer may be held liable for using excessive force in an arrest, an investiga uh, investigatory stop, or other seizures. A police officer also may be liable for not preventing another police officer from using excessive force. Now, uh, this has obviously been a big deal in the news of late, and we're gonna get more in the lessons and applications, we're going to get more to uh, some possible applications, implications of this, as well as how Christians navigate um, authorities that are not doing their jobs properly, you know, in just a minute. For now, all I need you to see is the historical fact that Ananias, the high priest here, is kind of famously a jerk. He just, he's, he's a terrible individual by every historical record. He's a violent man. He's an insolent man. He's a greedy man. He's a guy who stole from the poorer priests. Uh, he's a guy who is actually going to be assassinated in 66 AD by some zealot revolutionaries who kind of gleefully stab him to death because nobody liked that guy. And, and not too many cried many tears over his departure because he was ruthless and he was terrible and he's a wicked leader. Now, despite that, there is some scholarly debate. Uh, Bible commentators will say, to what extent is Paul justified in these verses where he starts sort of bad-mouthing Ananias, I don't know if you noticed that, he called him this whitewashed wall, which is another way of saying a hypocrite, right? You have this veneer of cleanliness on the outside, but you're rotten at the core. Uh, he also says, God is going to strike you just like you struck me, you know? So to what extent is Paul able to do this and say this and still respect governing authorities, which Paul is all about otherwise? Well, I think at the end of the day, where we come, to, uh, come down on that is what Paul is saying here is true. 
what Paul is saying here is prophetic, like God is going to strike down Ananias the same way that Ananias struck him. And thirdly, Paul is often used as a conduit by which God just speaks truth into the world. He's done this many times. So I think that's what we, this is the assessment. God is speaking through Paul here to make a divine assessment of Ananias. Uh, that said, I, I still think, you know, the question, the question that bothers people when you read through something like this is how on earth does somebody like this in character get elevated to the position of such authority in general in life and especially in religious authority? How does that take place? How, in other words, how do people of low character get to places of high-ranking influential positions? <laughs> and the answer historically has almost always been bribery. It's, just, it's, it's not, uh, it's a fairly simple thing. Um, at this time, some of you might know the priesthood actually was a hereditary type of thing. The high priestly position was, according to Jewish law, was supposed to be a hereditary, uh, passed down kind of tradition. By this point in first century AD, it's a purchased position. And Sadducees would purchase it from the Romans. And therefore, that's exactly how Ananias got this position. And anytime you get to the point and it works both ways. Anytime you get to the point where on the basis of money, on the basis of prosperity, you can get a group of people to compromise character, your nation's moving in the wrong direction. Now, what I mean by moving both ways, historically, do you think any positions of influence in the church have ever been purchased? Yes. This is a real problem in the Middle Ages. Historically, do you think there were ever any positions in governing authorities that were ultimately purchased? Absolutely. And in, you say, okay, well, what does that look like in, in modern uh, democratic republic you know, society? H historically, has there ever been anybody who promised prosperity to constituents if they were willing to look the other way on corrupted character? Like, so long as you don't have an issue with my corrupted character, I will, pros I will prosper you and make things good in your life. Is that ever a thing? Historically, that's always a thing. And when a nation gets to the point where they are willing to seek prosperity or financial resource over, while looking the other way on godless character, that's a problem. It's always been a problem, and it was a problem for the first century Jews. Um, this is where Paul gets to the heart of his defense, though, and it's really, it's brilliant, like it's inspired level brilliant. Because what the Apostle Paul does here is he says, okay, from my perspective, the reason I believe that I am on trial is because I am, historically, I am a Pharisee, who was at the temple and I was presenting my case of resurrection. Now, here's what Paul knows. He's on trial before a group called the Jewish Sanhedrin and the Sanhedrin consists of two influential groups called the Sadducees and the Pharisees. Now, unless you understand the distinction between those two groups, this text doesn't really make any sense. The Sadducees were a group that consisted of the upper uh, elitist, aristocracy of society. So like the wealthy individuals who filled the highest, most influential positions in society, like the priesthood. They only believed in the first five books of the Bible as authoritative. So the books of Moses, they disregarded mostly the rest. The locus of power amongst the Sadducees was the temple area. And culturally speaking, the Sadducees were what's called Hellenistic. That means that they were Greek sympathizers. They loved Greek philosophy. Uh, they were sympathetic to Roman rule and were kind of considered themselves a gateway or a bridge between the Romans and the Jews. In contrast to that, now it wasn't the exact opposite, but it was a definite contrast. The Pharisees were not 
elitists, they were middle to upper middle class. They believed in all of the Old Testament Hebrew scriptures, uh, what we would call the Old Testament, their Hebrew scriptures. They believed all those books were authoritative. The problem is that they also believed that all Jewish rabbinical tradition, like the collective wisdom that was built up over the, the years by the Jewish rabbis, they believed that that was equally authoritative to the Hebrew scriptures. Their locus of power was decentralized. It was the synagogues, not the temple. And finally, culturally speaking, they were nationalists. See, the the Pharisees were constantly trying to overthrow the oppression of their evil overlords, the Romans. And so because of these differences, these two groups had this constant cultural tension between the two of them. And principle amongst this was, it wasn't just cultural tension, it was doctrinal tension. And as Paul mentions in this text, the biggest differences in their doctrine boiled down to two things. The Sadducees did not believe in angels or demons, spirits or souls. They did not believe in the spirit realm. So the idea of somebody coming and appearing to the apostle Paul made no sense. Furthermore, they also denied any conception of afterlife and therefore included the resurrection. Okay? So what does the apostle Paul do here? He understands the tensions that exist between these two groups And he says, he positions his argument this way, I am a Pharisee who was at the temple, remember that's the jurisdiction and the, the locus of power of the Sadducees, and I'm a Pharisee, and I was talking about the resurrection, and immediately the whole trial explodes. Why? Because you have these two different groups that are at one another's throats. Now, Paul isn't just, this isn't, this isn't plain politics. It's not just like a technique. It's totally true. The center of the Apostle Paul's teaching was the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's what brought about transformation in his life. So he's not telling lies here and he's not just manipulating them, but he just happens to be saying the single most convenient and helpful thing that he could possibly say, which gets these two people groups at one another's throats and it functionally ends the trial. It actually goes so far that the Pharisees are, are, are fired up by this because as the Sadducees start accusing Paul as he's talking about the resurrection, the Pharisees say, well, wait a second. His whole testimony started to make a whole lot more sense. You know, maybe he did get a messenger from God on the road and maybe he didn't. So like the animosity of the Sadducees, which is ungrounded and unfounded, is driving some of the Pharisees to actually start to believe the Apostle Paul's story. Well, how does it end? The Roman commander at the time, again, his name is Claudius, and he's the one overseeing all this. And he's, if if something goes wrong here and if rioting continues in Jerusalem, it's on him. What he does is he sees these two groups literally kind of like grabbing Paul by one arm apiece, about to tear him apart, and he says, you guys are completely incompetent to rule. It's it's any wonder we had to, you know, uh, subdue you. You guys aren't capable of handling this case. I need to get Paul out of here. He's a Roman citizen who deserves a fair trial, so I'm going to get him out of the city, and I want to stop the rioting in the city. So he pulls Paul out. He's going to send him, while he's figuring this all out, he's going to take him back to the prison, to the barracks. And it's in the middle of the night then that Jesus once again appears to the Apostle Paul. And what does he say to him? Take courage. As you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. Take courage. Remember what we said last week, courage is? Courage is not the absence of fear. Courage is doing the right thing despite the fact that you might actually be afraid. So don't run away from your fears in life. Face them head on, 
and face them with Jesus holding your hand. And when you do that, you will grow, you will transform, and on the other side of it, you will find joy. And Jesus furthermore says to him, look, it's not just in general that I want you to take courage. I've let this all happen for the very specific reason that I don't want you simply to be a missionary to Jerusalem, but I want you to go to the end of the earth. I want you to go to the capital city in the Roman Empire, the city of Rome itself, and I'm going to accomplish extraordinary things through your messaging there. All right? What does that mean? All right, a couple lessons and applications. I got three of them for you today, okay? First of all, the believer's necessary protest. I referenced this whole thing of excessive force earlier. I think we all understand excessive force is not only morally wrong, it's an abuse of authority, which makes it doubly wrong. Thirdly, it's illegal, and it, it's illegal now, and it was illegal back then. And so when the Apostle Paul is upset, what you got to see is he's not merely upset because he thinks that somebody has like sucker punched him. He's upset because he's standing in what should be the highest court of God's people on earth, the Jewish Sanhedrin, and they're completely unjust. And if they're going to mistreat him like this, they're going to mistreat everybody else like that. And he feels the need, he feels it's his God-given calling at this point to hold them accountable for what they are doing. Every authority needs to be held accountable. Why? Because the world is not filled with good guys and bad guys. The world is filled with sinners who have some semblance of the will of God, but who are nonetheless only saved by the grace of God. And what that functionally, practically means is that often you have the individuals who are enforcing the laws against the rule breakers are themselves rule breakers by nature. That's what Paul says in Romans. The individuals who carry out justice against those who break the laws themselves have a sinful nature and are therefore capable of sinfully holding down those who break the laws. That means that we all need to be held accountable. Just like the rule breaker needs to be held accountable, the one who is enforcing the law needs to be held accountable. Uh, because it's entirely possible to seek to enact quote-unquote justice, but to do it selfishly and to do it sinfully. And the Apostle Paul says that must be called out. Now that's not, that's not just complaining and whining and slandering and rioting against your God-given authorities. That's a lot easier, but that's not godly. It's genuine calls to repentance and seeking of justice in your leadership, both spiritual and civic. Uh, the biblical take on authority, just for a quick summary, is God desires obedience to our authorities insofar as authority is not violating its calling from God. In other words, the Bible teaches this concept called two kingdoms. It's the kingdom of God and it's the kingdoms of mankind. Now, the entire purpose of the kingdoms of mankind, why God established those kingdoms of mankind, is to non-selectively protect and serve, to maintain peace so that the other kingdom can do its job. The other kingdom is the church of God, and it can then, under a peaceful regime, can do its job of advancing the gospel and saving souls and healing lives. And when either one of those kingdoms 
becomes corrupted by sin, it needs to be called out and it needs to be addressed. We see this in the ministry of the Apostle Paul. We see this in the ministry of Jesus. We see this in the ministry of John the Baptist. You'll notice they constantly are entangled and embroiled with both civic and religious leaders. Um, Let me put this a slightly different way. I heard a Christian leader put it like this once. He said, Paul never found a way to be so comprehensively nice and invested in social justice that his enemies patted him on the back and left him alone. You follow what he said? The Apostle Paul can state something as humbly, as winsomely, as persuasively, and as godly as possible, and yet sometimes, guess what? He just takes it on the chin. Because when you hold authorities, spiritual and civic, accountable, sometimes that's what happens. But nonetheless, it's God's will. Paul loved Judaism, and he loved Judaism's fulfillment in Christianity. But he absolutely hated the corrupted version of it that he saw in his day in the first century, the corrupted version of Judaism that crucified his Lord and Savior Jesus. And therefore, he absolutely felt the need to stand against the established socio-religical factors and forces of the day. Um, I was reading something recently that I thought, it was just so striking how I thought if, if the Apostle Paul was living during this era, I think he would say something almost exactly the same. And you be the judge and see if you, you, you agree with me. But it's from an American statesman and an abolitionist by the name of Frederick Douglass. And in the life of an American slave, we have this recorded. He says, what I have said respecting and against religion, I mean strictly to apply to the slaveholding religion of this land, the American South and with no possible reference to Christianity proper. Do you understand what he's doing? He's making a distinction between what he calls actual Christianity, the Christianity of Christ, and a veneer of Christianity that people use to abuse others, which he's talking about the the Christianity of the South at the time. He says, for between the Christianity of this land and the Christianity of Christ, I recognize the widest possible difference. I love the pure, peaceable, and impartial Christianity of Christ. And because of that, I therefore hate the corrupt, slave-holding, women-whipping, cradle-plundering, partial and hypocritical Christianity of this land. Anti-tyranny is not the same thing as anarchy. And it's really important to understand the difference. And by the way, your feelings and your logic are not qualified to establish the difference between anti-tyranny and anarchy. So we look to the inspired word of God and say, what does it say? Where does it say the line for us actually is? And the word of God says that Christians support our governing authorities. We pray for them and we give them their due respect. But we also must obey God over man And we must call to repentance any authority established by God when that authority is acting outside of its calling from God. Make sense? Let's move on to the next point. Uprooting inconsistent beliefs. Uh, This is one of those 
witnessing techniques that from week to week we're trying to pick up from the Apostle Paul's ministry. And there's honestly, there's times when the Apostle Paul speaks where it's, he's so far ahead of groupthink of his day that it's like this is clearly inspired and, and, and divinely given. And we know it is. Uh, last year we studied uh, Acts 17 for two straight weeks and we said, it's just, it's just brilliant. And here it's the same deal. What the Apostle Paul does when he understands that in the room and the judges before him, there's an inconsistency between them that he's about to call out, between the Sadducees and the Pharisees. He says, what I'm going to do is I'm going to share with them, I was a Pharisee in the jurisdiction of the Sadducees at the temple courtyards, and I was teaching about the resurrection. Now, the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection. The Pharisees did believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in the resurrection of Jesus as Messiah, but nonetheless, they were supportive of the concept of resurrection. And so what the Apostle Paul does is he just pushes that out into the center of the room, and he lets, it functionally blows up the whole, the whole trial, the mistrial. Now, what is he doing there? It's... It isn't, he's not, I don't believe he's actually trying to win them over to the gospel at that point. I think he's just making a defense. In other words, I don't think this is evangelism, even though he's talking about the resurrection. I think this is, falls into the category of what we might call presuppositional apologetics. Presuppositions are the beliefs that people hold even when they don't even realize that they actually consciously try to hold them. And it's a very important aspect of Christian witnessing. It doesn't convert anybody to faith in Jesus Christ, but what it does do is it starts getting people to, to doubt their doubts about Christianity. In other words, people, when they convert, they don't convert out of a vacuum. They convert out of false beliefs. And in order to believe what is true, you have to start doubting what you currently hold to be true, which is actually false. That's presuppositional apologetics. It's, it's like the tilling of soil before the scattering of gospel seeds, okay? Think of it in those lines. The best way I've ever heard this described is, uh, and honestly, it's been a premise for a lot of my ministry over the years, is what I've heard the Apostle Paul, uh, excuse me, what, what I've heard uh, Tim Keller list in Center Church. Um, and I'm just going to read this lot there, I know, but then we'll kind of unpack it a little bit. Here's what he says. Our premises, our premises must be drawn wholly from the Bible. Yet we will always find some things in a culture's beliefs that are roughly true, things on which we can build our critique. We will communicate something like this. You see this a belief that you have, so this thing that you think is just a primary belief in your life. The Bible says the same thing. So we agree. However, if A is true, why don't you believe B? The Bible believes B, the Bible teaches B, and if A is true, then it is not right, fair, or consistent for you to reject B. If you believe this, how can you not believe that? And he says, we reveal the inconsistencies in the cultural beliefs and assumptions about reality. With the authority of the Bible, we allow one part of the culture, along with the Bible, to critique another point. The persuasive force comes from basing our critique on something we can affirm within our culture. Now, again, I know that's a lot. Here's what he's saying. Keller's acknowledging every person alive, believer and non-believer alike, have equal access to this thing we call the natural knowledge of God. The natural knowledge of God is science and conscience, nature and morality. Every human being has access to that truth. So what Paul does is he suggests leverage those to help people see the inconsistency of their own beliefs. 
Now, let me give you, there's thousands of examples of this. Let me give you one that I've used probably a hundred times before, and there's a couple uh, extrapolations of it, but just one, okay? Let's, let's say macroevolution, Darwinian evolution, molecules to man evolution. So I'm not talking about microevolution or adaptation. I'm talking about like nothing to something, molecules to man evolution, macro Darwinian evolution, okay? A lot of people in society hold that as what I would call a B belief. They're not passionate about it. They just hold it because they've seen it in a textbook. They, you know, it's what most people tend to believe, etc. On the other hand, an A belief of society around the world is, is what? It's the idea that every human being deserves some level of protection. And therefore, if you said, okay, uh, a bigger person taking down a smaller, a bully on a playground beating up a little runt for his lunch money, that's wrong. And a large nation moving into a smaller nation and pillaging its resources, that's wrong. Almost, almost everybody on planet Earth agrees with that basic premise, right? The, the individual's rights and power at this point. Now that's an A belief. The B belief is macroevolution. But what it, those two things are at odds with one another. Why? Because macroevolution teaches what? Survival of the fittest. Might makes right. The propagation of the species. In other words, if you can get a big individual to beat up a small individual to take their resources and maybe even kill them, when that big individual reproduces in life, guess what that is? That's the propagation of the species. That's how the human species gets stronger. And that's the exact kind of argument that a Hitler would use for things like ethnic cleansing and genocide. That's perfectly logical, but don't you agree that that's wrong? In other words, if you believe, A, that every human deserves some defense, then why do you believe, B? Wouldn't it make more sense to believe that every human being was created by a divine God who loves them, who created them in his image, and he actually loves them so much that he's willing to come down and make himself vulnerable and die in their place, not to save the strong, but to save the weak? Isn't that a better B belief to replace? Why won't you just doubt your presuppositions about macroevolution? Don't you realize that it's currently inconsistent with everything else that you believe? Let me give you another example of this, okay? Um, the idea that, so we'll stick with macroevolution as a B belief, but another A belief would be, be the belief that every life has meaning, purpose, and value. Well, why? Most of us believe our lives have meaning, purpose, and value. Um, you know, it's, it's kind of like this self-evident thing. We might struggle to figure out exactly what my purpose is or whatever, but if you said to somebody, your life doesn't matter, they would be very offended. Why? Because they inherently know my life does matter, right? The value of human life. And yet, if you came about through random chance processes, if you are, Bertrand Russell's famous phrase was the random collocation of atoms. You're an accident. According to macroevolutionary worldview, you are an accident, and therefore you came accident. Only things that are designed have purpose. Only things that are designed have meaning. Do you sense that your life has any meaning or purpose? You should. It does. And the Bible teaches that it does. So why don't you doubt your presuppositions about macroevolution? It says that you came from nothing, you're accidental. When you die, you go into the ground and nothing exists after that. You know intuitively that that's not true. Isn't a better be belief the idea that God created you in his own image, Jesus loved you enough to die and redeem you into his image, and the Holy Spirit now empowers you to live out according to that image? 
why don't you start doubting your B beliefs, your presuppositions, and replace it with, a, with this better B belief. Does that make sense? There are thousands of examples of this. They're walking around in our society all over the place, and, and here's what it is. You use the authority of the Bible, and with it, we allow one part of our culture, along with the Bible, to critique another part. It's not evangelism, it's soil tilling for skeed scattering. It's soil tilling in preparation for evangelism work. And actually the greatest evangelist in world history, the greatest missionary in world history, the apostle Paul does it all the time when he's giving his Christian testimonies. Why? Because people don't convert out of nothing. They don't convert out of vacuums. They convert out of false beliefs. And in order to get them to believe true things, you have to get them to doubt the false things that they hold first. Okay? All right. Brings me to the final point, the unsearchable wisdom of God. The high priest's action in this account and the Jewish Sanhedrin's reaction in this account made it very clear, love, justice, and truth do not reside in this house. And it was very self-evident to the Roman commander, Claudius, and he says, I gotta get Paul out of here. And interestingly and poetically, what do we then see? God using the kingdom of this world to maintain some level of peace so that the gospel ministry of the Apostle Paul can go and be spread. And what we see is that even with flawed authorities like this, God can use them to carry out his purposes. What I need you to see then is God does the exact same thing in your life. You get so angry because there's corruption all around you, and there is. And you get so angry because authorities abuse their power, and sometimes they do. And as we've already said, they need to be called to repentance on those things and held accountable for those things. What you don't need to do is lose hope because you have corruption of individuals here and you have abuses of authority here and the supreme God who sits on his throne and governs all things for the good of his people, what is he doing? He uses this to get Paul out of here safely and actually on the empire's dime, the Apostle Paul is now going to have a ticket to get all the way to Rome to bring the gospel to the end of the earth. That is God in his sovereign power working all things out for good. You have to see that Jesus does the exact same thing in your and my life too. So the summary of this lesson, Christians, there's two ways to sin against authority. There's two ways to sin regarding authority. One is that Christians sometimes unfortunately complain, slander, and riot under governing authorities, secular or religious, and they do it in sinful ways, sometimes. On the other end of the spectrum, sometimes Christians also unfortunately fail to stand up to authorities out of fear and self-preservation and hold those authorities accountable to their God-given callings. The Apostle Paul, in the example we see here today, it's brilliant. We see him holding his authorities accountable while respecting them, carefully, calmly, logically, persuasively before the watching world. But that's not the gospel. You don't get saved by navigating authorities in life properly. You get saved by looking at the one that the Apostle Paul's ministry actually pointed to. Jesus is the ultimate authority. Not only that, Jesus is the ultimate authority that governs all things for your good, but he's the ultimate authority that loved you enough to give up some of his safety in heaven and come down from heaven to earth and become subjected to corrupted earthly authorities 
to such an extent that he would get crucified by them, both the wicked religious authorities and the wicked civic authorities. But he did it, why? Voluntarily, because he loved you and he wanted to switch places with you and he wanted to die for all the times that you and I have not navigated authority in our lives properly. But because he did it, he saved us. He saved us eternally and now he's eternally empowered us to go forward and navigate the dicey situations presented by authorities in life. And therefore, when we first praise Jesus for sitting on his throne and controlling all things for the good of his people as risen Lord and Savior, governing over creation for our good, then we'll be able to have a godly relationship with the flawed authorities that we encounter in this world. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, forgive us for both disrespecting the authorities that you've put in place in our lives and for failing to hold them accountable. Thank you for being the perfect, gracious authority who cares for us. Now help our Christian testimony rise above the problems and the politics of our world. May it be to your glory. Amen. This message was a production of St. Marcus Lutheran Church. For similar content, subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, or our YouTube channel. For more information about how to support our urban gospel ministry in Milwaukee, please visit stmarcus.org.